Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. We're taking you back to March 19th, 1878, where you're a fly on the wall of the plenary session of the Académie de Médecine in Paris. It's been one hell of a year. Physicians, chemists, public health professionals, and veterinarians have been arguing bitterly over the science of contagion, and they were in Paris to hash it out. French chemist and microbiologist Louis Pasteur saunters in triumphantly. He's holding a dead chicken in one hand and a cage with two live chickens in the other. These theatrics were designed to perturb another scientist at the meeting, veterinarian Gabriel Collin. Collin and Pasteur had been arguing all year about Pasteur's insistence that chickens were immune to anthrax. Pasteur hypothesized that chickens' natural body temperatures were too high for anthrax to survive. Collin thought this was nonsense. At the height of their disagreement, Pasteur demanded that Collin present him with a chicken that had died of anthrax. Collin did not hold up his end of the bargain, and Pasteur added insult to injury by exhibiting his newest experiment, which had proved Collin wrong. Pasteur had cooled a live chicken in a cold bath and then administered anthrax to the chicken. He died, this was the dead specimen he held in one hand, but the cage in his other hand housed two controls. One chicken that had been given anthrax and no cold bath, and another that had been given a cold bath but no anthrax. They both survived. As Pasteur paraded around his dead and living specimens, the impressive members of the Académie de Médecine praised his experimental gusto. They were sick of arguing back and forth about nothing more than general theories about contagion. They wanted scientists to act rather than write and speak about diseases. Pasteur must have swelled with righteous indignation that Colon had even doubted him. Pasteur's shenanigans confronted academia with the lived experience of an experimental scientist. The stinking dead chicken, the certain knowledge that its death had been miserable, the living chickens pattering around their cages, squawking, pecking, pooping, flapping, entirely unaware that they'd taken part in medical history-making. This interplay between human and veterinary medicine was incredibly common in the second half of the 19th century. While human medicine and veterinary medicine were distinct professions, they were inextricably linked in the latest experimental turn. Not only were animals involved in the experiments that led to medical breakthroughs, they were crucial to the ethical and public health policies that shaped modern medicine. 
Today, we're exploring the history of animals and medical science. I'm Marissa. And I'm Elizabeth. And we are your historians for this episode of DIG. Welcome back, listeners. We want to thank you all for subscribing and supporting us over the last five years. Our Patreon supporters keep this history excavation team digging, and we owe the most to our fabulous auger and excavator-level patrons. Lauren, Edward, Iris, Denise, Susan, Agnes, Peggy, Colin, Maddie, Maria, Jesse, and Hannah. We can't thank you enough. Listener, if you're not yet a patron of the show, it's easy. Just go to patreon.com backslash dig podcast to learn more. The distinction between human and animal medicine goes back to ancient times, but so does their interdependence. Historians of medicine know that there have been both a distinction and an interplay between human and animal medicine since at least the time of Hammurabi. We know this because Hammurabi's code differentiates between physicians and veterinarians, but it also describes medical practices that were common on both humans and animals. Even before the time of Hammurabi, historians theorized that gatherer-hunter societies had reason to attend to the health of their non-human animals. Most prehistoric communities made animal sacrifices to appease their gods. Sacrificial animals were typically not any old cow or hare or goat. For most of human history, sacrificial animals were bred and tended carefully to ensure their health. The healthier the animal, the higher quality the sacrifice, and the greater likelihood that their sacrifice would be rewarded. As societies tended more to their sacrificial animals, they developed a better understanding of animal anatomy. Sometimes, sacrificial animal tenders acted as healers to humans as well as to their neighbors' farm animals and pets, passing on their valuable folk knowledge and skill to others. In ancient Rome, the highly stratified society was replicated in the world of animal health. Animals kept for sacrificial ceremonies to perform in the circus or in the military, more patrician activities, were highly valued. They were worth the time, labor, and money necessary to keep them healthy. Animals who aided the peasants in farming, produced milk and cheese, or served as pets or working animals in other professions were not worth the resources it took to heal them. This hierarchy remained for much of the pre-modern period. In early modern Europe, academic resources were concentrated on military equine medicine and fancy elites. So that's uh, horses in the military and then, you know, aristocrats. While farriers, barbers, and lay doctors treated everyone else, including the peasantry and their pets or working animals. By this point in history, human and animal medicine were similar. There were three primary interventions or modes of healing. We've talked about many of these practices before on the show, but I'm not sure we've ever characterized them like this. Um, The first mode is manipulation. So here we're talking obstetrics, castration, wound treatment, simple surgery, bleeding, burning. Um, And another good example would be Otzi, the Iceman who was discovered recently. He had um, therapeutic tattoos on his wrists, which were arthritic. Um, So those kinds of things would have been manipulation. In humans, we also saw dental work and advanced bone setting, and that would be included in manipulation as well, but those were less common for animals. 
The second mode is medicinal, and by this we mean the ingestion of herbs and folk remedies. Medicinal interventions were generally reserved for humans, but wealthy landowners or even peasants who really valued their livestock would seek out these remedies for their animals as well. The third and last intervention is spiritual. Historically, this might include animal sacrifice, incantations, prayer, magic, or ceremonies performed by shamanic healers. Today, this might include Reiki, chakra, uh, crystal healing, confession, etc., etc., I know as contemporary people who are familiar with modern medicine their whole lives, spiritual healing hardly seems like it belongs in the same category as medical science. But for most of human history, manipulation, medicinal remedies, and spiritual healing were used alongside one another. For example, sweat lodges, which may have had both physical and spiritual aspects. Spiritual interventions were used generously on both humans and non-human animals probably because of their low overhead and presumed availability of spiritual healers in most times and places. Again, animal medicine was generally considered to be a peasant's problem and not worthy of attention from academics until the later 17th or early 18th century. This was all about to change due to four factors, the scientific revolution, the enlightenment, the rinderpest epidemic, and the discovery of vaccination. Science in the late 17th century was all about empiricism. The first microbe was identified in 1665, though they still had not developed germ theory, so there was no coherent understanding of the mechanisms of contagion, even though most scientists believed that microbes were related to health and disease. During this time, Francis Bacon developed the scientific method, and medical experimentation began to rival traditional academic medicine, which was more reading books. (laughs) Um, Many of these experiments fused human and animal medicine in new and exciting ways. One example is the practice of vivisection. Vivisection is the process of dissecting live animals or human beings, ostensibly in the interest of scientific discovery. This term was invented in 1709, but the act itself had been taking place for ages. For example, ancient Greeks do experiments on the optic nerve of live animals in an attempt to understand sight and blindness. Vivisection becomes more an issue and becomes a critical aspect of science and medicine in the 17th century, specifically with the work of two scientists, Robert Hooke and William Harvey. Hooke was a classic 17th century scientist, incredibly brilliant and multi-talented. He did research in tons of things, the mechanics of physics, gravity, timekeeping, microscopes, paleontology, astronomy, the workings of the brain, architecture, etc., etc. During one of his experiments, Hooke tried to investigate the mechanics of breathing by cutting off a dog's chest so he could see the lungs working. Without the chest muscles, the lungs could not continue to work, so he ended up forcing a tube down the dog's throat to force air into his lungs. He thought that the investigation was worthwhile, but also felt badly about the dog's suffering. He said, or wrote rather, quote, I shall hardly be induced to make any further trials of this kind because of the torture of this creature, end quote. So for Hook, this was going to be a one-time thing. William Harvey, on the other hand, famous for being the person to uncover the workings of the human heart and circulatory system, learned about the ways that the human body worked by examining the bodies of animals. 
Harvey was the personal physician of King Charles I. Because of his proximity to the king, he had access to the king's stock of deer, so he wouldn't have been tried and hanged for poaching the king's deer. Charles I found his experiments fascinating and important and did what he could to help Harvey in his work. So when the king and his men went on a hunt, they brought home freshly killed deer for Harvey to examine. Though later, Charles I was beheaded himself, putting an end to Harvey's plum position in the royal court. But the knowledge gained from his dissections helped Harvey write two important works, one on the workings of the heart and one on human conception, gestation, and birth. A creepy side note, I think, um, is that Charles and his men often went hunting during the height of mating season when the deer were making baby deer. And Harvey actually benefited from that, particularly because the king's men would take the doe that had been recently impregnated, and then he could see the physiological changes that were happening in its body. And that became a large part of his work on conception, gestation, and birth. In addition to Hook and Harvey, scientists like Bernardino Ramazzini began to take interest in occupational diseases. Ramazzini's book, Diseases of Workers, was published in Modena in 1700. This marks the first time that academic medical scientists expressed interest in the old peasant problems faced by the nameless, faceless laborers of the world. This growing interest in occupational health would have a critical impact on human health in the next century. As the 18th century progressed, the Enlightenment transformed medical inquiry. Though the scientific revolution took place in the 17th century, giving birth to the scientific method, it wasn't until the next century, the 18th century, that scientists realized they could apply the scientific method to the study of humans. The Enlightenment, which has various periodizations, but one of the common ones is 1637 to 1789, incrementally shifted the public's understanding of disease and death. In medieval Europe, infectious disease, human suffering, and premature death were usually understood to be providential, meaning God's will. By the 1740s, most people were realizing what scientists had known for decades, that disease and death were preventable and that it was within our grasp to decode life's mysteries, to measure, to study, and to preserve it. These powerful imperatives spawned countless scientific disciplines, epidemiology, anthropology, embryology, just to name a few. Scientific study shifted to a clinical focus, so for the first time, scientists were applying their theoretical education to real people. Post-Enlightenment science understood humans as animals within a large typology of animals. This is thought of as naturalism rather than as mortal beings in the image of God, which would have been a more biblical understanding. Now, these first two factors were philosophical shifts that changed the way humans viewed the world and their place in it. But there were also two very practical events that tied human and animal medicine together, one medicine. For there was a series of panzootics, or animal pandemics, that plagued Europe during much of the 1700s, Rinderpest, anthrax, and hoof and mouth disease. These panzootics were studied by our good friend Ramazzini, the occupational disease guy, between 1709 and 1713. Ramazzini was so used to studying the way that workers' behaviors led to physical ailments, so he applied this methodology to the cow plague that was ravaging Europe. This is also known as Rinderpest. 
He knew there were no physical causes, meaning there was not an occupational ailment suffered by cows because of their behavior. So he looked at the disease's behavior instead. He was impressed by its specificity. It only infected even-toed undulates like cattle, buffalo, deer, giraffe, etc. And he was even more impressed by its incredible contagiousness. Rinderpest is transmittable through direct and indirect contact with bodily fluids as well as via aerosol. Rinderpest panzootics took place in Europe in the 17-teens, the 1750s, and the 1770s. Over 200 million cattle died of rinderpest between 1709 and 1769. That's a loss of 20% of all dairy cows in existence continuously over a 60-year period. The seriousness of this rinderpest problem necessitated immediate action from authorities in Europe. The Pope's physician, Giovanni Lancisi, recommended immediate extermination and cremation of infected cattle and cattle suspected to be infected. England did the same and was eventually forced to reimburse farmers for the cattle that the government had destroyed. Francis Louis XIV and his emergency council instated strict public health measures for cattle. Prussia took to issuing health certificates for transported cattle into a bid to stop the spread of rinderpest. After a century of panzootics, rinderpest became endemic in Europe, but it continued to rage in other parts of the world. Most notably is the great African panzootic of the 19th century. In the 1880s and 1890s, rinderpest destroyed sub-Saharan Africa, killing 90% of its cattle. The rinderpest also decimated the oxen, goat, sheep, buffalo, giraffe, and wildebeest populations. The consequences for this part of the world were, understandably, devastating. Without these animals grazing, entire swaths of land were left unused and susceptible to invasive thorn bushes. These thorn bushes are inedible for livestock and became home to the tsetseet fly, which transmitted the sleeping sickness. These circumstances made sub-Saharan Africa particularly vulnerable to colonization by European powers during this time. European colonizers devoted much of their resources to eradicating rinderpest in their colonial holdings. There was little left for infrastructure development and investment in colonial citizens. Most historians believe this is one of the reasons why Africa's public health system is more robust for animals than it is for humans even to this day. At the same time that rinderpest was raging in Europe, so the 1700s, so too was anthrax. We know now that anthrax epizootics occurred in Europe circa 1760, in the late 1770s, and 1790s. Contemporaries probably lumped in anthrax contagion with rinderpest contagion, referring to them both as part of the massive cow plague. But anthrax confused scientists' findings because it was slightly less contagious than rinderpest and its impact on the body changed depending on the mode of infection. What's worse, as the French physician Nicolas Fournier discovered in his study of what the French called Charbon Malin, anthrax was communicable to humans. In his studies of Charbon Malin, Fournier found that people were sometimes infected after ingesting the meat of a similarly infected animal. His extensive clinical observations led him to classify different types of charbon. And charbon means uh, charcoal or carbon. 
Um, so this was called like the malignant charcoal was the nickname for the disease. Spontaneous charbon was an occupational disease that sprouted up in poor, unhygienic peasants who handled livestock. Contagious charbon was caught by contact with a contagion. Contagious charbon could either be external, so just be kind of lesions on the skin, and then this was survivable, or it could be internal. Internal charbon was always and immediately fatal. Though Fournier was unable to clearly identify the pathogen causing these diseases, he did identify the two main presentations of anthrax, as we know them today, cutaneous anthrax and gastrointestinal anthrax. Now we have identified one last panzootic from the 1700s that was probably lumped into the cow plague by contemporaries, foot and mouth disease. Foot and mouth became a panzootic in 1755, the 1760s, and into the late 1770s. We now understand these three panzootics as distinct pathogens, but keep in mind that folks living through these panzootics would probably have lumped them all together. Since it was before germ theory, they would not have been able to distinguish between the different pathogens, and that must have made the experience even more terrifying. The last practical event that happened during the 18th century that tied animal to human medicine was one that our listeners should know well, the invention of vaccination. We have a whole episode on this, so I'm not going to go into detail here, but the long story short is that dairy farmers began experimenting with purposely infecting their children and servants with cowpox because they noticed dairy maids who had contracted cowpox were immune to smallpox. Physician Edward Jenner eventually heard tell of these goings-on and conducted a few experiments himself on humans, taking cowpox from humans who were infected with it and infecting other humans with it. In 1798, he published his findings that vaccination significantly reduced one's chances of contracting smallpox, and if contracted anyway, vaccinated people were much less likely to die as a result. Jenner's experiments are often considered the Big Bang of modern medicine, and it's not coincidental that the other animals like cows were involved. Jenner's experimentation came at a time when humans had a better understanding of where they fit into the animal kingdom. This new attitude had jump-started the discipline of veterinary medicine. Academics and practitioners alike were interested in animal medicine and what animal medicine could do for humanity. One might even be able to say it became a topic of national interest. Rather than view the cowpox as unimportant and the milkmaid's lived experience as a matter for peasants, they recognized the importance of folk knowledge and experiential learning, and it revolutionized medical science. Following Jenner's example, scientists were intent on using these new forms of knowledge for innovation. By 1800, veterinary or zoological and human medicine were two distinct, meaning separate, right, fields, but they were in many ways more related than ever. During the 1800s, we see a rapid industrialization and mechanization of farming. Animals were increasingly used as sentinels to assess environmental risk to human health. For example, see Elizabeth's Canary in a Coal Mine episode that came right before this one. Cattle and other farm animals were forced into increasingly mechanized food systems. Think of the horrific conditions of the meatpacking industry uncovered by Upton Sinclair in 1904 Chicago, for example. 
Moreover, these developments were publicized by a salacious news media, which was consumed by increasingly reform-minded citizens. It should hardly be surprising, then, that the 1800s saw a massive growth in animal rights activism. Despite the exploitation of animals that was taking place on a large scale in their daily lives, many activists focused their anxieties and ire on scientific practices that exploited animals. Let's be clear that these practices that we're about to discuss did not originate in the 19th century, not by a long shot, but we're discussing them in this part of the show when we've gotten to the 19th century because the volume and cultural currency of animal exploitation exploded during this time. The most common form of animal experimentation by the 19th century was epidemiological in nature, meaning the experiments were aimed towards the prevention of infectious disease. Now, this is a contentious subject, and we are not here to take sides on it. 19th century scientists and their contemporary apologists are quick to point out that epidemiological experiments on animals led to important breakthroughs that improved the lot of both humans and animals. And they're right. But animal activists from the 19th century and today are also right when they raise the ethical issues involved in animal experimentation and testing. Animals have no way of consenting to or understanding the repercussions of participating in experiments. So let's look closer at some of these case studies. The 19th century saw the advent of germ theory, microbes that were previously called seeds of disease or animalcules was another word for them in earlier centuries, had been discovered long ago, right? Um, It wasn't until the mid-1800s that germ theory became accepted science, and that's a whole other episode. But it's super important for us to point out that these earliest microbe hunters, which are scientists that are kind of looking for all these microbes, they vacillated seamlessly between human and animal medicine. In fact, it was the fusion of human and animal medicine that made these breakthroughs in modern medicine possible. Remember, we've already seen this once with the smallpox vaccine. Some of these breakthroughs benefited animals even more than they did humans. Scottish scientist Sir David Bruce focused on diseases that were problems for both humans and animals. He discovered the Brucella bacterium and African trypanosomiasis, which is sleeping sickness when it's in humans and nagana when it's in animals. Um, Bruce and his team developed a tetanus antitoxin and a tetanus vaccine that revolutionized wound care during World War I. Louis Pasteur, who starred in the vignette at the top of the show, was the captain of the microbe hunters, experimental scientists hell-bent on identifying microbes and their mechanisms of contagion. In addition to his work on anthrax, for which he developed a vaccine, Pasteur worked on resolving chicken cholera. Chicken cholera was a highly infectious disease with nearly a 100% mortality rate that plagued poultry yards around the world. Pasteur set to work on investigating the disease sometime in 1880. That summer, he became distracted and forgot about his chicken cholera culture for some time, which, as an academic, I totally get. Um, When he rediscovered the old culture, he used it to inoculate some chickens and concluded that the bacteria had lost their ability to infect. To check this hypothesis, he developed a fresh chicken cholera culture and administered it to the chickens who had gotten the stale culture and to a new set of chickens who hadn't really gotten any cultures yet. The chickens who had been given the old culture fought off the disease while the other set of chickens all died. 
It goes without saying that this accidental discovery of the chicken cholera vaccine had a positive impact on the health of poultry all over the world. It also benefited the folks who owned the poultry or made their living from them. Pasteur referred to this method of reducing the virulence of microbes as attenuation. He did something similar with rabies, a viral disease that infects both animals and humans. One of Pasteur's contemporaries, German Rudolf Verkau, they were born the same year, was responsible for identifying Trichinella spiralis in pigs. His discovery triggered public health measures that improved the lives of both animals and humans. He coined the term zoonosis, which is a disease that can be passed from animals to humans. As a result of this work, Raquel became passionate about the idea that there must be no division between human and animal medicine. Canadian physician and pathologist William Osler continued this work, teaching both medical students and veterinary in Montreal in the 1870s. Osler's work emphasized the importance of comparative pathology and what would become known in the 20th century as one medicine, that is, one medicine for both humans and animals. While the realities of epidemiological animal experiments were unsettling to some, their legitimacy within a one-medicine framework was easy for medical scientists to argue. To most folks in the world, it was worth sacrificing some animals if the end result meant that the health of future animals and humans would benefit. But as the 19th century progressed, it became harder and harder for scientists to justify the experiments they did on animals in the quest to better understand animal and human physiology. One practice in particular was responsible for the development of an entire animal rights movement, and it's one we've already mentioned, vivisection. So it's clear from what we discussed earlier that scientists and physicians valued vivisection as an important way to learn about the workings of the body. And, of course, even autopsy on human corpses drew strong condemnation, right? So it shouldn't be shocking that vivisection was controversial. Vivisection only became more common with the progression of scientific medicine, particularly in the 19th century, though debates over the appropriate uses intensified at the same time. There were bodies available for autopsy, but only in very limited supply. And of course, there was one major difference, right? They were all dead. At the same time that vivisection was becoming more commonly used by doctors and scientists in the early to mid-19th century, people in both the U.S. and Britain were starting to think very differently about animals. For ages, what we would consider clear cases of cruelty to animals were simply common practice and was generally considered entertainment. Cockfighting, for example, was a very common form of entertainment. And of course, gambling during the 18th century, even for the most dignified planters and gentlemen, cockfighting was just something that all men did. Bear and bull baiting were the entertainment of kings and queens in England for centuries. Of course, it wasn't no holds barred when it came to the treatment of animals. One of the earliest laws we have regulating the treatment of animals comes from Massachusetts that at the time was a colony in 1640, uh, and they had passed a law making it a crime to drive cattle too hard. It actually mandated that you had to pause to allow animals to rest and get food and water every so often. But these kinds of regulations were usually exceptions to the rule before the 19th century. So why this sea change in feelings about animals? 
Though the Second Great Awakening proper is an American story and therefore a little more specific than we want to get in this more general episode, it's worth mentioning because it didn't happen in a vacuum. There was also a period of Christian revival in Great Britain and many other Christian countries around the world. Americans, Britons, continental Europeans, and their colonies were moved by a desire to better the world in the hopes of bringing about the second coming of Christ. This was a desire that affected so many facets of life. For example, it influenced the temperance or anti-alcohol movement, abolitionism, uh, of course, it's the biggest one, right? Um, education reforms, improving asylums and poorhouses, etc. Um, there's lots of examples. Some of this energy was also directed into stopping animal cruelty. In Great Britain, religious reformers were able to push for the first animal protection law in 1822, which was focused specifically on protecting cattle, horses, and other farm animals from improper treatment. And the first British animal rights organizations were created in 1824. Part of the initial concerns that were raised by things like cruelty observed cart horses in large cities that would literally be driven to death and would die on the street. And there were some highly publicized cases where these cart horses were put to death by their drivers in the street. Another push for animal rights reform came during a huge fashion trend towards feathers, and feathers were being used in hats and women's hair decorations. And as one might imagine, feathers don't grow on trees. They grow out of birds. And so bird populations were being literally decimated for fashion purposes because people wanted pretty feathers in their hats. And there are really important connections between animal cruelty laws and the many, many other 19th century reforms, especially vegetarianism, duh, um, and perhaps surprisingly, abolitionism. This is a reminder to American history lovers, um, abolition was a transnational movement focused on abolishing slavery worldwide. So what's the connection? And this is a reminder that abolitionists were often racist too, by the way. In the eyes of white reformers, both slaves and animals were the helpless property of their masters, and they were also both easily and often exploited or mistreated by their masters. And again, I just want to pause here to say, keep this idea in your mind because this will come up again. This idea that animals are almost an easy sort of analogy to humans who are in particular conditions. So it's not just slaves. Later on, it becomes white women um, and children. And it's a way of kind of garnering sympathy for humans, which is really shocking. One would think that it'd be the other way around, that you'd want to compare animals to humans and humanize them to garner sympathy for animals. Um, but here's a fun fact. The Anti-Cruelty to Animals Act came before the Anti-Cruelty to Children Act. You know, suffice it to say that they're connected and one relies on the other. Animals were often used as barometers of behavior in a way that we kind of still do today. If a man was cruel to his horse or his dog, wouldn't he also be cruel to his slaves and maybe to his children or to his wife? And I think that's very much an idea that we still have today, right? Um, that if somebody mistreats, you know, helpless animals under their control, that it's actually an indicator for things like sociopathy. There's some famous examples of this that come up in abolitionist literature. One really famous example uh, comes to us from Uncle Tom's Cabin, of course, the most famous American antebellum novel written by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This really sentimental and romantic kind of novel is intensely popular. It's actually the best-selling novel in the United States, besides the Bible, right, um, for decades and decades and decades. 
And there's a scene in the novel where the two main characters, Eliza and George, are they're both slaves and they're discussing this kind of horrific incident that happens with their master. Um, George tells Eliza that um, he really loved this dog that, that she had given him named Carlo. Um, and he talks about how this dog was so comforting to him and it slept with him every night and followed him around and how he really identified with this dog. It kind of felt like the dog knew all of his kind of daily struggles living as a slave, right? Um, and at one point, he was feeding the dog outside of the kitchen door with some scraps of food that he found, and the master found him um, and ordered him to uh, kill the dog because he said, I'm not here to be feeding, you know, every single one of my slaves' dogs. Like, that's that's too much for me. I order you to kill him. He told him to um, tie a stone to his neck and throw him into the pond. So Eliza says, oh, George, you didn't do it, did you? And he says, well, you know, I didn't do it, but the master and Tom, another character, pelted the poor creature with stones and, and, and they killed him. In that scene, there's there's also an altercation between George and the master over the treatment of some horses that George stands up to. Um, he kind of stands up for the those horses and says, you know, we need to treat these horses better. And he kind of takes the master's ire for that, right? So you can see this connection between the treatment of slaves and the treatment of animals. So as we've alluded to already, animal welfare groups eventually also became became advocates for children. There were animal welfare organizations long before there were any child welfare organizations. But in this world, children were supposed to be physically corrected. And also, their upbringing was considered strictly the purview of their parents, and so people didn't see the need to interfere. The first child abuse case in the United States took place in 1874, and it was a case of a little 10-year-old girl named Mary Ellen McCormick, who was beaten horrifically by her adoptive mother slash guardian. When her neighbors tried to get help for the little girl, they went to everyone, the Department of Public Charities and Corrections, which was in charge of asylums, as well as hospitals and orphanages. But no one could really do anything because there weren't any laws regarding this issue. You know, there was no jurisdiction, essentially. So eventually, the little girl's case was taken to the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. The ASPCA had been founded in 1866 and had largely been concerned with protecting horse cart horses in New York City. The founder of the ASPCA, who was wealthy and had some clout, was able to get a prominent lawyer to take up the case, which they ended up winning. The little girl became something of a sensation. Newspapers like the New York Times took up the story, and suddenly everyone was fascinated not just with Mary Ellen, but also with the idea of child abuse. The lawyer and Henry Berg, who was the ASPA founder, were also so moved by the case that they founded the New York Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. And that same year, it was the first of such societies in the world. In the United States, these groups grew up a little bit later in the century than in Great Britain. The first one in Great Britain was founded in 1822 or 24, and the ASPCA didn't get founded in the United States until 1866. The turning point for the American animal rights movement was the Civil War. One author that we read about this topic argued that it was actually the deaths of horses who were killed in the literal thousands during the Civil War that helped to make Americans think differently about animals and the sacrifices that animals were making. Horses were so intimately a part of most American lives that they were the animals that often got people to think about this issue differently. 
The shift in the early 19th century in which people began to think differently about animals and became invested in preventing cruelty towards them also extends, of course, to the use of animals for experimentation and scientific research. In 1874, there was something of a turning point when a French doctor named Eugène Magnon performed a particularly disturbing demonstration before the British Medical Association. Magnon was doing experiments about how alcohol and absinthe affected the central nervous system. And on August 13, 1874, Magnon tied down a dog for a demonstration, apparently in the smoking room of a Masonic lodge. And observers testified later that this dog looked as if it was being crucified. It was shaking and whining with fear, and it cried. Of course, when Magnon sliced open its thigh... Some of these doctors watching were disturbed by this scene, understandably, right? Um, But others thought that it was kind of just ridiculous, arguing that dogs were not sensible in the same way as humans. And Magnon, when he's criticized for this, argues that the dog is insensible. He's not suffering anything. So essentially, this is an important point because vivisection was just very much accepted by physicians. This was just, you know, kind of an accepted practice. Most surgeons agree that vivisection was maybe unpleasant but necessary for the advancement of medicine. So by vote, they, you know, all the doctors who were present voted and they decided to continue with the demonstration. One man who happened to be the president of the Royal College of Surgeons of Ireland, his name was Thomas Jolliffe Tufnell, was really angered by this. So he couldn't really let it go. Um, And he says to Magnon in the middle of the demonstration, that dog is struggling to get free and I'm a sportsman as well as a surgeon and I will not see a dog bullied. Magnon sort of ignored him and then inserted a tube into the dog's femoral artery and blew some air into it, which caused blood to spread out all over the dog and all over Magnon's white apron. Magnon then poured pure alcohol into the tube and the dog became very obviously affected and intoxicated, essentially. Magnon then said to Tufnell, now you see he's insensible. He's sort of teasing him about his sensitivity to this. Um, But Tufnell was not dissuaded and he sort of shot back, yeah, well, he's never going to be sensible again now because you've killed him. And indeed, just after that, Magnon injected the dog again, this time with absinthe, and the dog appeared to have a seizure and then died. And this caused a great deal of unrest in the animal rights community and outside of the animal rights community, too. This wasn't just people who were zealous about the rights of animals. The Magnon case brings in lots of other people, particularly, because this guy who was very respected, you know, he's the president of the Royal College of Surgeons of Ireland, is the one spearheading this. He lent some credibility to it. But there was a trial afterwards in which four English surgeons who had been present were charged with animal mistreatment, cruelty, and torture. Magnon had run back to France to escape the charges. The doctors were not convicted. Ultimately, the court could not find that what they had done was not justified in the name of science. It's pretty gross. Right, super gross, considering... And then this case really marked a turning point in what became known as the anti-vivisection movement led by Frances Power Cobb. In 1875, she created the Society for the Protection of Animals Liable for Vivisection. 
Cobb was a suffragist, a woman's right activist, a writer and a journalist and a social reformer. And if, as if all that wasn't enough, Cobb was also a theologian. She's actually a really critical figure in the history of the Unitarian Universalist Church. She was also today what we would probably describe as same-sex desiring and lived in a lifelong partnership with a woman named Mary Lloyd, an artist who shared her passion for social justice. It's no mistake that Cobb was both an animal rights activist and a woman's rights activist. And it wasn't just that people who were social justice-minded tended to think along particular lines. For Cobb and other activists, men not only treated both women and animals poorly, but thought of them in similar ways. Women, particularly in the minds of physicians and scientists, were less evolved than men by their reproductive capacity and apparent urges towards baser desires to have offspring and raise them. Women were forever stuck on a lower rung of the evolutionary ladder, while men who were, uh, who were able to prioritize mind over body were far more highly evolved. And this wasn't just about reproduction. Scientists obsessed with categorizing the human race into narrower and narrower groups based on their skeletons. And women's skulls apparently looked much more like the skulls of Africans than the more highly evolved European men. Quote, unquote. Quote, unquote. <laughs> right. Um, very sarcastic. In turn, women, particularly those involved in women's rights activism, saw themselves as closer to nature as well, except in a different way. They saw themselves in animals' defenselessness their vulnerability at the whims of men who could be at turns affectionate and caring and then also cruel and violent. They also felt a kinship with animals through emotion or women's apparent innate ability to feel. They believed deeply the animals also felt and thus deserved not to be in pain, right? So to a lot of women and women's rights activists, this sort of kinship with, and um, solidarity with animals came really naturally. One of the things that we're not going to get into quite as much, but that it's important here to kind of bring up, um, is that one of the arguments over vivisection and anti-vivisection becomes not about whether or not doctors can perform these experiments on animals and whether or not the animals need to be under anesthesia. And this ends up being kind of one of the compromises that they make that, okay, you can still do this, but you have to take the proper steps to make sure that the animals aren't in pain. Frances Power Cobb and her activism intertwined women's rights and anti-vivisection. For example, in her powerful essay entitled Wife Torture in England, Cobb wrote that the familiar term wife beating conveys about as remote a notion of the extremity of the cruelty indicated as when candid and ingenious vivid actors talk of scratching the newt tail when they refer to burning alive or dissecting out the nerves of living dogs or torturing 90 cats in one series of experiments, end quote. For Cobb and for others like her, cruelty to animals and cruelty to women were intimately connected, both symbolically and for some activists in reality. Like abolition, they believed that a man's treatment of animals was indicative of how he would treat women. And there's a wonderful historian named Leela McNeil, formerly of the blog Lady Science. Uh, Leela wrote a really fascinating essay for the blog that um, Dig is very intimately tied to and Sarah is the executive editor of called Nursing Cleo. Um, and Leela McNeil's 
essay was all about the connection between women's rights activism and anti-vivisection. McNeil makes this argument that because women had no voice in the public sphere, they had to turn to alternative venues to express their feelings about violence towards women and animals. For example, the Royal Society for the Protection of Animals was entirely male-run, even though women were very active in that organization. They didn't have a public voice in the organization, and so they turned to other venues, specifically poetry and literature. Anne Bronte, Mary Wollstonecraft, Jane Austen, and Mary Coolridge all used imagery of captured, wounded, or subjugated animals to describe women, specifically birds and cages, with the, which of course is really interesting because Maya Angelou, uh, her most famous book is I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, right? So she's drawing actually on this much older literary tradition. A powerful example and pointed example comes from a poet named Mary Howitt. Written in 1824, she writes, Oh, that they had pity, the men we serve so truly. Oh, that they had kindness, the men we love so well. They call us dull and stupid and vicious and unruly, and think not we can suffer, but only would rebel. They brand us, they beat us, they spill our blood like water. We die that they might live a million in a day. Oh, that they had mercy, for in their dens of slaughter, they afflict us and affright us and do far worse than slay. We are made to be their servants, we know it and complain not. We bow our necks in meekness, the galling yoke to bear. Their heaviest toil we lighten, the meanest we disdain not. In all their sweat and labor, we take a willing share, end quote. And this poem, um, she's ostensibly talking about animals um, working alongside men, But you could read it without much effort, I think, to be referring to women. One of the things that's most powerful is when they say, we die that they may live a million in a day. And there's this idea, you know, that the animals are just expendable. And, you know, to me, that sounds a lot like childbirth in the sense that um, we die that they might live a million in a day, right? So it sounds like childbirth, right? Women, they're sort of just... They're making all these sacrifices, raising children, giving birth to children, dying in childbirth so that men can live, right? And I don't know that Mary Howitt um, purposely did this, but this kind of idea, it certainly reflects the tone of the period and and the sort of um, comparisons and analogies that folks were making. And just to sort of bring this back around to an individual that probably folks might be familiar with is Charles Darwin, right? And he was an anti-vivisection advocate. And this is important because he was, you know, also very much like the scientists of his day. But he was, according to his friends and family, very tenderhearted towards animals and was deeply distressed by stories of the torture of animals at the hands of other scientists. He did believe that sometimes it was necessary for the advancement of science, but that it was too often abused. For example, in his 1871 The Descent of Man, Darwin wrote, quote, Everyone has heard of the dogs suffering under vivisection, who licked the hand of the operator. This man, unless he has a heart of stone, must have felt remorse to the last hour of his life, end quote. And then a letter that he wrote around the same time, he re-emphasized this point by writing, You ask about my opinion on vivisection? I quite agree that it is justifiable for real investigations on physiology, but not for mere damnable and detestable curiosity. It is a subject which makes me sick with horror, so I will not say another word about it 
unless I shall not sleep tonight. So it's clear he had really strong feelings about it, right? And and just to interject here, this is another sort of sticking point that he's pointing to in the vivisection, anti-vivisection debate is differentiating between experimentation and demonstration. And what really bothered people about Magnon's case with the dog and the absinthe was that it wasn't experimental. It was a demonstration. And the dog was essentially just a prop in this kind of theatrical thing that was happening. And that's what really drove people crazy about it. Now, that was sort of part of science and medicine at the time. Um, When you think about the 19th century and medical colleges, how they operated on people in a room full of onlookers or medical students in these big theaters, but obviously the humans who were dissected in these theaters were dead, right? Um, Pain and suffering weren't part of the show. And that's why there were debates between doctors and scientists over whether or not it was acceptable. And some people said no for demonstration purposes. It's not acceptable. But then other doctors had a legitimate counter-argument, which was that those demonstrations were critical learning opportunities. Not all of us have the ability to get our hands on animals or humans to learn, right? And so we need to be able to see those demonstrations. For Darwin, it's pretty clear that this was important to him because he's not just writing it in letters to friends, he's also writing it in his second major publication, The Descent of Man. And so this is interesting because he was not particularly political. He really didn't even defend his own work. When The Origin of Species came out and it was criticized heavily around the world and in the scientific community, he didn't get wrapped up in the controversy. But he made an exception to his kind of apolitical principles for the anti-vivisection movement. He joined his daughter and son-in-law in crusading against the practice. In 1875, Darwin himself helped to draft the Playfair Bill, which required that all animals used in experimentation needed to be anesthetized, and that animals could not be dissected for demonstration, but only for specific experimental purposes. Darwin's role in the advocacy for the bill lent it serious credibility, and in 1876, it was passed as part of a larger bill called the Cruelty to Animals Act in Great Britain. So I think that Darwin is also important to the story because it demonstrates that you can be um, committed to rigorous science, but also be willing to adapt its standards and take issues of pain, morality, and ethics into consideration. And in this sense, it seems that Darwin was kind of ahead of his time. So after that detour into the vivisection and anti-vivisection campaigns that dominated medical ethics in the 19th century, we're now going to bring it back around to the larger purpose of this episode, which is to explore the interwoven nature of human and animal medicine in history. We've arrived at the 20th century, which is a watershed moment in the history of medicine. At this point, many pathogens have been identified, and medical science is becoming increasingly capable of neutralizing the threat of infection. Human anatomy was all but entirely mapped out, and so one might think that animals became less important to medicine than they had been in the past. But of course, you'd be wrong. In some ways, human and animal medicine are more intertwined than ever. In some cases, this is because animal anatomy or epidemiology serves as a fruitful comparison to novel human diseases. For example, in the 1970s, scientist Max Essex launched a huge research project on feline leukemia virus, which is known as FELV, which is a very common viral infection that damages the immune systems of cats. 
When the HIV epidemic hit the United States in 1981, Essex and his team noticed incredible similarities between Felvi and HIV, and they were quickly able to pivot their research toward the research of HIV instead. Perhaps the most common interplay between modern human and animal medicine concerns zoonoses. Zoonoses are diseases that can be transmitted from animals to humans. There are over 200 of them known to us today. Why, in our age of modern medicine, are we still discovering new zoonoses? Well, first of all, these pathogens mutate over time, so there will always be new pathogens with which we need to contend. But the more obvious answer is that we pay comparatively little attention to animal pathogens until, that is, we discover that humans are susceptible to them. And then, obviously, our interest is piqued. We mentioned earlier some of the 19th century scientists who were concerned with zoonoses, um, Verkau and Osler. But the one medicine concept, the idea of one medicine for humans and animals, um, continued to grow in the 20th century. In 1947, James Steele established the Veterinary Public Health Division of the Center for Disease Control, the CDC, in the USA. There, Steele and his colleagues focused their efforts on the prevention and eradication of zoonoses like bovine tuberculosis, rabies, and more. It wasn't until the 1960s that the one medicine approach actually got its name from Calvin Schwab, a veterinary epidemiologist teaching at UC Davis in the U.S. Zoonoses can be transmitted in a variety of ways, such as direct or indirect contact, such as the case with brucellosis, for example. Or you can get it by biting, which is what how people get dengue fever. You can also get zoonoses by consumption of contaminated animal products. We see this with salmonella or the ingestion of intermediate hosts. This is what happens with tapeworms. During the 20th and 21st centuries, zoonoses are most prevalent in the quote-unquote developing world, which we understand is a problematic term, um, where human and animal contact is more quotidian and public health infrastructure is weak. But they can happen anywhere, and humans have been experiencing zoonotic infections for millennia. Historians think that humans have been fairly aware of zoonoses since ancient times, even if they didn't understand the mechanisms of infection. For example, Semitic cultures refrained from eating pork, which we think may have been a way to avoid cystocercosis or trigonosis in a time when refrigeration was not possible. Likewise, some African tribes didn't allow the keeping of dogs in order to reduce the risk of rabies long before the rabies pathogen was identified. While animals and humans are able to make each other sick, they're also able to give each other immunity. This is called zooprophylaxis, or interspecies cross-immunity. Historically, zooprophylaxis was understood by folk practitioners for decades or even centuries, but they were then later, quote-unquote, discovered by mainstream academic medicine. Such was the case with the cowpox and the smallpox, like we talked about earlier, um, the same with rinderpest and measles, the same with tuberculosis, same thing with leprosy. In these cases, a human's prolonged exposure to sick animals with similar diseases built up their immunity um, to the diseases that, that impacted humans. As scientists have learned about the way zoonoses impact our society, the concept of one medicine continues on, but under the guise of one health. In recent decades, due to the eradication of many of the most dangerous diseases, medical scientists have begun to focus less on infectious disease and more on behavioral health. This is also true in the field of public health for humans and herd health for animals. 
The integration of human and animal medicine continues in the world of surgery as well. Xenotransplantation, the transplantation, implantation, or infusion of animal cells or tissues into the human body has saved many human lives. Bovine and porcine heart valves are commonly used to replace dysfunctional human heart valves, for example. Pig skin can also be grafted onto human tissue that's been severely damaged by burns. There are even animal tissues and fluids that are used in the making of modern vaccines, which are then injected into human bodies. There are ethical and safety issues involved in using animal tissues and organs in humans. Some ethical issues are obvious. Animals can't consent to the use of their tissues. But others are less obvious, or at least they don't apply to everyone. One can imagine objections to the use of pig tissues by a kosher Jewish person, or an objection to bovine tissues by Hindu patients, or objections to vaccines by vegans who eschew animal products. Then, of course, there's the issue of disease. And we're still identifying new zoonoses today. Uh, COVID-19, anyone? There is evidence that some pathogenic zoonoses remain latent for years, only to flare up at a, you know some later date. Are we putting humans at risk for these mysterious infections? Still, medical scientists argue that it's only a matter of time before xenotransplantation becomes the norm. The COVID-19 pandemic, um, COVID-19 is a zoonotic disease, right, reinforced the need for a One Health approach among the scientific community. Even with all the medical advancements we've made in the 21st century, humans were still vulnerable to a pandemic zoonotic disease. While the integration of human and animal medicine has a long history, it appears it will continue to be a concept that we'll need to contend with today and in the future. So this gives you some things to think about now in our sort of post-pandemic world, right? Um, thanks for joining us. If you need transcripts or show notes, you can go to digpodcast.org. Please also check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash digpodcast. You can go there to support our show. Um, we also have merch and we have a Facebook group called the Dig History Pod Squad, where we just kind of share uh, memes and, and interesting history things that we discover. You're welcome to uh, ask to join that and I will add you. And thank you for listening to this series on animals. Have a good one. Bye, thanks. With a nearly 1,000% mortality rate that plagued poultry. One Why did I say that? The Rinderpest epidemic. Oh my God. But the act, ex but the act, ex why can't I say it itself? Trichinella spiralis in pig. Chicken. Published in Moderna in 1700. Medina. Modena. Diseases of work. Over 2 million cattle died of rent. 200 million. The Pope's <laughs> The Pope's physician. But whether or not the animals need to be anesthetized. Anesthetized. And whether or not the animals need to be anesthetized. Under, just say be under anesthesia. And whether or not. Ooh, Nelly.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.